that afternoon I got a box shipment of frogs and I was trying not to waste them and of course I tripped and dropped over a hundred frogs oh, no. running all in the lab. I can remember walking down the street saying hello to people and looking at me like right. I was strange. You're right, you know, because right. that's just something we do in the South. Hey everyone, my name is Basam Zahid and welcome to This Meharian Life, the podcast where we interview Meharian students, faculty, administrators, and alumni and showcase our school's diverse contribution to the history of American medicine. Welcome to episode 16, my interview with Dr. Stephanie Bailey. Dr. Bailey is the Senior Associate Dean of Public Health Practice at Mehari Medical College, where she also completed medical school and residency. She has served as Director of Health for Nashville and Davidson County, worked as a Director of Public Health Practice at the CDC, and has won numerous awards for her work and her leadership. Dr. Bailey, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. So you are the Senior Associate Dean for Public Health Practice at Mehari Medical College. I am. You've been here again for your third time around after residency and Meharry Medical School. I was a student. You were a student also. I was a resident. And when I was director of health, I was affiliated with this program. I directed it for about a year under Dr. Maupin. And so back again for about a, almost two years. Two, two years. years. Mm-hmm. So what's a typical day for you like? A typical day in this position is is a combination of a lot of things that brings, I'm, I'm serious, it brings a lot of skill sets today on any given day ready for a challenge, whether to, it's a leadership thing, casting a vision, or managing an issue, entering into a crisis, or just pause in a moment just to get my thoughts together. But typical days, if I look at my calendar, it'd be about a meeting, inside or outside, it would be about um, looking at my next initiative to start and managing and, and putting together how to start that. It would be listening to, for opportunities and conversation just with students or with faculty about how does that fit into a vision because we really are going for a school of public health, a fourth school to set on Meharry's campus, and that's exciting for me. It keeps me sort of motivated in a different way. And when do you hope to launch this public health school? In my time frame, it would be by next year. And I've only been here two years. Wow. But given that you have to be patient with process and the way structures of different organizations are made, I would say now, realistically, it'll probably be another three to five years. Three to five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then is the Department of Public Health can I call you guys that at Meharry right now? The Division of Public Health Practice. The, the Division of Public Health mm-hmm. Practice. Under which is a program called the Masters of Science in Public Health. And are there any initiatives other than establishing the school that you're excited about? Well, that, that captures most of my vision. The opportunity to have public health be a part of every discipline, just like having health a part of every policy. That's where I come from. And to see the School of Dentistry wanting to enhance their um, level of public health practice and knowledge, 
the school of school of medicine in this new curriculum mm-hmm. to understand more the value of public health because tomorrow's practice, no matter where you are in dentistry, allied health, PA, is about the community and moving the community's health, you know, to a different level and hopefully a better level. Right. So my thoughts are all encompassing about the impact that Meharry can have on communities even better than what it's had in the past. Let's go mm. back to the beginning. Okay. From the evolution of of who you are over time, did you always know that you wanted to be a doctor growing up? Absolutely not. What a wonderful question. Um, when, I was, when I grew up, all I knew is I was going to college. And I was the type of, of person that anything that was um, professional and exciting and just, just stood out in glorious, gloriousness was I wanted to be a part of. Like Rudolf Nureyev. I wanted to be his partner, his ballet partner, uh, Anne Sutherland, to be able to affect the life of Helen Keller. I saw myself, oh, I want to be that, to be the greatest maestro. Everyone thought I was going into music, by the way. Really? And so... Did you play any instruments? Oh, yes. Yes. What did you play? You want me to finish this part? or Just... just <laughs> I, we'll put, we'll jump around. We'll, we'll jump around. <laughs> oh, yes. I was... Um, let me let me go on this, and then I'll come back to the music piece. So I knew I was going to college, and I, I didn't quite know what I was going to do. Everyone thought I was going into music, and I loved the sciences. I loved math, and so I remember taking my second year of college, taking organic chemistry, and my organic chemistry professor pulls me aside after class and says, 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 Stephanie, you need to think about going to med- medical school. I said, okay. I applied and I got in. And when I look back on it, there were people in my class who all their lives wanted to be on, go to medical school, and some of them didn't get in. And here I was, never even gave it a thought coming from the small town where I was, and I get in. That's prophetic for me. And so I came to Mary and my story evolves like that throughout my life. Who would have thought I would have become director of health of this, of this city or chief of public health practice at CDC? Neither I had to apply for. It's just a matter of doing my work well, being on the cutting edge, and just working hard. And things get noticed, and I really believe that. Now back to music. I was first year French horn. And I remember when Allstate band, and there was this person who always was first chair, first French horn, and I beat him this year. And I was just, wow. And then there was a given that um, this person, especially after we integrated, that she was the pianist for the jazz band, and I played piano since I was six. And so they opened it up the competition competition the year we integrated. It was my 10th grade. And I went up against Linda and I beat her and I became the pianist for the um, jazz jazz uh, concert band. But I played the French horn and piano and I sang. I created and directed both our choral and our band. And so everyone kind of thought I was all Eastern Shore Um so is that where you grew up, on the Eastern Shore? Eastern Shore, Maryland. I did. But the all-Eastern all chorus, I was the only one from my county that was picked for that, and that was held in Boston. 
And that's how I came to go to school in Massachusetts because I, I wanted to be near Boston. I just became so enamored with Boston when I was a junior in high school. And so so I guess everything has a little meaning why I do this and why I happen to come here. So, so that's you, my musical piece. And today I sing with the Concert Chorale of Nashville and we give concerts for, we do benefit concerts. So. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Worcester. 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 You know how to pronounce it too. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I spent some time in Boston also. Oh my goodness. I had a friend of mine who grew up in Worcester. A lot of people say Worcester or, or Worcester. Worcester. <laughs> oh my goodness, it's Worcester. I remember um, I'm from the Eastern Shore of Maryland and I used to take the Greyhound bus up to Worcester and changing at Port Authority. I remember coming home April, 1st of April to, to Maryland and I brought all my winter clothes home and I went back for Snow was up to my waist, mm-hmm. you know, so. So you went up to Clark University because you wanted to be close to Boston. I wanted to be close to Boston. That's correct. And and why was Boston such like a, a beacon for you? Um, when I went there as a junior in high school because of the, the chorus, I was just, the place was just a fascinating place to me. And, you know, I've been to, I've been to, was Baltimore and Washington, D.C. and Philadelphia, but Boston just sort of opened up a new vision for me, you know, coming from the small town on the eastern shore of Maryland. And I just said, I have to, I have to go up near Boston. After you studied psychology at Clark, mm-hmm. why psychology? You know, I really don't know how I came to choose that major. Um, I was interested in people. I don't know if it was convenient but that's probably the question that you gave me that I really have no reason why I chose psychology. Mm. But I did see possibly clinical psychology or a psychiatrist, um, but I was in psychology. And I, the other interesting part about that is um, I didn't like mice, but I'm in psychology. And to do lab, you had to do mice. Interesting. Somehow I got out of that, though. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sneaky, huh? (laughs) So then you applied to medical school and you got into Meharry Medical College. Did you know about Meharry growing up? I did not. So how did you decide on what schools to apply and where to go? Yes. I, after Dr. Trachtenberg, you know, sort of piqued my interest about medical schools, I began to look and at uh, Clark, I was there were probably only seven blacks uh, in my class out of, um, I don't know, I guess the school was about five to 700. And there may have been 12 blacks in the whole four years of the school. I thought I went, needed a black experience, number one. And Meharry was good, and it was in a different part of the country. So I applied, and I got in. Can I ask why you felt this desire for this black experience? Where did that come from? I think it came from, I was in school during the time that there were takeovers. And... So this is the late 60s. Uh, yes, 68, 69, 70. Uh, Kent had just happened, the shooting in Kent. And somehow I always wanted to ex- to, to have a wholesome experience. So... We went from my kindergarten to 10th grade, segregated, 
on the Eastern Shore of Maryland. Integrated in the 10th grade, um, the northern part of Caroline County had a, a pretty easy integration process. The southern part had a pretty difficult shootings and stabbings, whereas we had a pretty uneventful uh, integration. And then I went from there to predominantly all-white college. And it wasn't so much about race, white or black, because um, I had a broader outlook than, than a narrow one, always have. But, you know, you hear, I, I just decided to come to Meharry. And that had its good and its bad, too, as well. Did, good learning experience. Did you have any mentors growing up that pointed toward you towards the direction you went or you are in now? Absolutely not. I, my mentors pointed me towards values like integrity and courage and not being fearful and doing your best and always um, being on time, managing your money, you know, just good core values, not so much towards being a doctor or, um, or what career to leave, just beginning to know myself early enough and trusting my talents. And I think that's, that's probably the biggest thing when I look back on that uh, speaks to my life, how I, how I went about it, that it was recognized and doors opened. And you, you seem pretty confident. So did you, was there ever yeah. a situation growing up where you felt like you did not have the confidence to achieve something? I'm, I do have confidence with, with a lot of humility. Um, when you grow up, um, family, there's six of us. And the biggest fear I had was letting my family down because I was always an A student. I always did well. And I, I got concerned at some point about whether people dismiss my true concerns or my true fears or my insecurities because they knew I would do well. I remember several times maybe coming to my mother, and she was fantastic, but her immediate thing would say, oh, you'll, you'll t- it'll work out. You'll take care of it. And in my younger mind, it's like, but what if I can't? Mm-hmm. And I tied that with, will you still love me? And I can go back and say that now because it's, it, was, it, it did have some self-limiting conversation going on in my mind. But then I gave myself permission. I do have permission to fail. And it eases, it eases at least how I approach things that I can miss this mark. I don't have to make this A. And it's not tied to whether my family loves me or not, or is that dependency on it. Um, so that's a whole psychological right, thing that but I, I do on myself. I, st- I think it is still mm. pretty profound to be able mm. to give you yourself the permission to fail. Yes. When I became a life group coach, I named my group Permission Granted because I think it is very important for people, especially today, they're driven by the grade, they're driven by the perfection and it creates to me an unhealthiness. So I coined a long time as I get my permission. People ask me what I do on my day off. Absolutely nothing by permission. Very affirmed in that. Mm-hmm. Because I know that my work, when I do begin it again, 
is going to be at the level that it needs to be in order to accomplish what I need to accomplish. So I can rest. Then maybe there is something in six days and you rest on the seventh. I give myself permission. And I always tell my young scholars, you have permission as well. Permission granted. That's really deep. Mm -hmm. I have a long, lot of years to reflect on and get really deep and profound. <laughs> I know. That's, that's why we're here. This is my favorite part. Um, you're here at Meharry in 1972. What was it like? Mm. <laughs> do you remember? Oh, do I? Tell us what it was like back then and how do you think it's changed over time? Thank you. One of the things that struck me and I remember my fortitude was so strong in uh, being direct and being honest. And there were some people around me who were not. So that was potential conflict. But it wasn't to the degree that it is today. And What do you mean? It saddens me, I think. And this is more reflecting reflection of how the culture, the world, plays into the academia. Kids are coming to school now with a lot more stuff around them than we did when we came through. We had our stuff, but a lot more stuff. What do you mean stuff? Stuff like dependent on everything given to them. You think that's more now? I do. We have more distractions. We have more... I do. Inter disruptors and those type of things um, and not the deliberateness of the drive, I think, is different. Whereas I wanted to be a physician and helpful, the drive is different. You know, it's, it's like for the grade or the prestige, I still haven't figured it out, but it is a big difference in the students that are in school now than the students that were back in the 70s and 80s. And I guess every generation could say that. Right. But I've been observing for now, what, almost five or six or four, four or five generations. So do you think we are more coddled now? Absolutely. And we just expect more things? Go ahead, say it, preach. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> I'm deciding whether I need to defend my generation. <laughs> no, I, no, no, I think it's, there, there are definitions for each of the millennials, you know, uh, the Gen Xs and all those type of things. And, and there is a, um, a selfishness and it's different from self-preservation. There's a, I'm going to use the term entitlement, but it's not because you, you, you woke up one day and said, I'm going to do this. But in parents wanting to give you everything and wanting to make, I think it, the balance, it went over it where people are not thinking for themselves and they want everything fed to them. And they're challenging things without a whole lot of substance behind their challenge. And um, So what would be your advice to one of my generation or even the one coming up because mm -hmm. the next generation is a generation that has never known anything other than technology. That's like right. They've, they're, they grew up with iPhone pretty That's much. That's right. That's correct. Um, now, whether that contributes to how people feel interact. about the world or interact with the world or mm -hmm. obtain information, mm -hmm. um, that's debatable. But from what you see, like what do you think we could be doing to improve ourselves. I think you have to get back to face-to-face -face encounters because there's more to interacting with people than just um, sending them a text. 
people become bold behind barriers of, of social media, but yet it tempers when I have to look you in the eye mm-hmm. and see how you react, how you respond. I can see how you care or don't care. There's a lot to be, be said for that kind of interaction. Uh, I, just, I just debuted my documentary. Um, What's it called? That is called Through My Father's Eye. My father had one eye. And in the, he used to have the first Bell and Howell movie cameras, and he used to take pictures of Denton, where I'm from, how we lived, how we worked, how we play. And certain symbols of how I grew up and certain community values, I'm convinced that those kind of values are in any, any community, anywhere. And I think we have the ability to recapture and reclaim and preserve those. That's the message of the movie. So when I look back and I see the porch, for instance, what a way of my, we used to have to sit on the porch and my father would make us wait. We were on a busy, waved everybody come by. Hated it. But looking back now, what a, what a way of surveillance and connectedness. The dining room table. We had dinner on the table every day at 530 when my father came home from work. Family togetherness, sitting, no iPhones, no, no pads. We're having, we're communing together. We're eating together. I can find out how you're acting. How was your day? I have a sense of who you are as my child or my husband or he, me, or, you know, we have a sense of, and that, that's the time when you interact enough to model your values and things that would help them be professionals and interact with the world. If I'm just interacting through a, a media and millions of people following me, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. What the heck does that mean? Your followers. I know, and I'm important. <laughs> I have some value. I have, I've been given some prestige of some You've sort. You've been anointed. <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you, and it gives you a boldness too. Um, but I think we, we're losing it, and I think for this generation to have permission granted to just put aside these things medically, epinephrine and nep- norepinephrine put you in balance. To be always on, I think there's going to be some medical consequence down the line. You can't always be in epinephrine, and that, I mean, I can't be without my phone, and every time it answers, I've got to see that buzz. And you get a little dopamine that's an aware, rush. I'm telling you, that's an awareness that is going to is going to have some imbalance, some consequences down the line, because we were made to be in balance. That's another deep, deep. deep. I'm getting revved up now. <laughs> I know this is great. <laughs> Let's get your epinephrine up. <laughs> well, um, hmm. what residency did you go for? Internal medicine. Internal medicine. Real medicine. Ooh. Mm-hmm. I threw it out Ooh. there. The gauntlet. Yes. <laughs> yes. Why? Yes. So why did you want to do internal medicine? Real medicine. <laughs> internal medicine. That's correct. <laughs> um, another thing I think is lost today is the art of medicine. When we began to get into uh, a very litigious society and I see a patient and I have to do every laboratory, everything to get my diagnosis, that misses the art of medicine. The art is in that interaction, that ROS, that review of systems. 
that gives me the time to sit and just talk to you from head to toe, just seeing where you live, work, and play. And then to have you come out with the aha, that's why. You own it and therefore better chance of, of dealing with it in a sustainable way. But the system is not set up like that because you have five or 10 minutes to do this and you have to, because the reimbursement system sort of causes you to work a certain way. I think we need to, if we got back the art of medicine, then we could mitigate some of these other things we've just been talking about. Very passionate about medicine. So my approach to my real doctorness and internal medicine was still about having enough space and enough time to do my, um, my review of systems, my communications, and then I'd have to confirm with the physical, confirm with the laboratory, should have my diagnosis by then. A lot of us fourth years, we're graduating right now. Mm-hmm. You're, we're about to leave and go into our residency. And even for you know, third years going to away rotations or mm-hmm. second years coming up into their clerkships, what advice do you have to, for us to improve our art? Yeah, it's a given you have to learn the skills well. You have to learn the basic 10, ten things that cause pancreatitis. or ten, You have to learn your differentials. So you have a basic feel for the, the, the context and the knowledge and the principles around medicine and then diagnosis. Then you have to practice it with humility and with care. You can develop your own style but with humility and care. I have this gift. I'm using it to for healing. I'm using it for healthiness. You know, just appreciate that. And it's not, it's not so much for chasing the money. Our skill set is for the healing and the health. Money does come, you know, but the value and the what we feel for having to take in our gifts and then dispensing it like we do, that's where the real value is. And I think that's the healthier approach to it. And as a female in medicine, mm-hmm. as you've risen through the ranks, you've worked at in a diff- variety of kind of offices. Um, you referred to working at the CDC, um, working in government, mm-hmm. in public health, and even maybe in... I did the Nas- National Health Service Corps payback here in rural Tennessee. In rural Tennessee. Mm-hmm. So... In, these, in a variety of these offices, as you held leadership positions, did you ever get any pushback because of your gender? <laughs> you know, I probably did. I don't look at the world. I just don't look at the world like that. You know, when I was director of health, I used to uh, tell these stories. One, I'm the, um, around the mayor's table, his cabinet. And it's a good old boy table, you know, that doesn't diminish me. In my eyes, it doesn't. When I go and I tell, when I was director of health as well, and my CEO or CFO, uh, a white male, and we would have this thing because some tables we were at, the comfort level is to defer to him. Didn't bother me because the buck stopped with me. They have to come back to me. And sometimes I would, it, we would have this little thing where they were deferring to him, eyes or 
just talking to him and not looking at me, I would interject, but you have to say that to me because the buck does stop here. So it takes people off guard. Mm-hmm. So there probably were tables that I, I never saw a table I shouldn't be at. And if I wasn't, I knew how to insert myself in there because I knew how to stand in my authorities. As a director of health, I knew how to stand in my authority authority as God's child. I just, I just know how to, and that comes from my father and my mother. I know how to stand in my authority. So yeah, what does that mean? Because I really like it that means, phrase. Yeah, I do too. It's mine. I got I'm the patent on it. it. <laughs> but it means, um, I'll use it for example, even in, because I use it with my faculty here. It's as a, as a thesis chair, your authority is, number one, if a student's not ready to defend, you have that authority to say, no, you can't defend. No matter what the student says, that's standing in your authority. As a faculty member, my syllabus says this, and if it it has on there uh, so many absences, you know, you get deducted. It has on there you to do assignments. It has on there you to read. It has on there the grading scales. You come back to challenge me, and I, I may have several choices, but my authority is I've given you this. This is our contract. Enough said. That's in my authority. I also in my authority, if you're acting up in my class, the authority to ask you to leave. Rather than cowering or afraid that they're going to be, that I'm wrong or the consequences are too great. Mm-hmm. So it's called being bold too, I guess, and being assertive. But I'd rather say stand in your authority because we all have authorities we could stand in. Um, so, Did you ever stand in your authority in a situation where you regretted it later? I probably have, have not stood in an authority when I should have. But I can't recall one that I did not because I still have humility and grace. I know how to talk to people. Um, and if I don't and I hear that I didn't, I know how to have that next conversation too. Whether it's a po- can't be afraid to apologize. I always, another thing I say is that I'm very good and firm. I can give a no and it means, and it's a complete sentence. But I should also be able to accept a no. If I can give it, if someone tells me no, I should be able to accept it. So those are just some things around my reflection on how I live my life and can still walk and look myself in the mirror every day. I'm, I'm not, I don't think I'm brass or brazen, but I affirm where I, where, where I sit at anybody's table and I'm, I'm not afraid to tactfully speak up. I regret when I haven't spoken up. Mm-hmm. But I don't know of a time where I have stood firm and it um, backfired. backfired on me. Where do you get your drive from mm. and your ambition? I know God has my destiny in his hand. I know he's, I really know he's ordered my steps. I also know when I look back that he has set my what's in front of me. I never would have thought that I would be in academia. That wasn't the route I took. I never would have thought I'd be chief of public health practice and executive leadership at CDC. So how did that even you know? come about? Yeah. 
you well, know, what what <laughs> what made you make that turn? Or how did I come to make that turn? Right. Well, let's start with the CDC. And that was after the health department. The, I was director of health for twelve years, and in in doing the my work as director of health, I always tried to be on the cutting edge because I thought if we weren't on the cutting cutting edge, we'd take up too much space. And what do you mean cutting edge? What what Means, did that mean to you? You're watching the horizon and you're seeing you're seeing what's coming out there, and then you then you move your agency in order to to sort of capture what's leading out there. I'm not a lagger necessarily, wait until, okay, the last minute, okay, I'll get on the wet bandwagon. But I was very strategic in looking out there, seeing what's what's happening. Um, I wouldn't be the person that would be the still reading my uh, hands while technology is changing. So as one of the things I pulled our health department was being a business. Health departments otherwise are just doing the Lord's work, but we got to run like a business. We got to manage because we got to have some business terms. We got to have some goals. We got to be on a pathway so for survival, and that's what I mean by being on the cutting edge. I might hear that something is happening over here. That wow, we need to do that. That's right for our community. You know, we need to do that. So as we're doing our business and we're we're becoming part of the national scene. We're beginning to do research at the health department. We're beginning to uh, submit to our national organization, being more active. You begin to be noticed. And so, and you were doing all this in Nashville, right? Mm-hmm. Nashville and Davidson County? Yes. Okay. So when you're being noticed, um, your name's always out there and said, I hear you on this. I hear your name's up for this. I hear your name's up for Assistant Surgeon General. I hear your name's up for the CDC thing. And it's like, no, no, no. But as it turned out, it was. I remember going into a conference when the director of CDC, Dr. Julie Gerberding, was coming on stage early. She saw me in the audience and she says, I need to see you, just like that. We went outside and she said, I need you to be my chief of public health practice. I've heard about you. That was it. And how immediate did you say yes or no? <laughs> um, did you be like, let me check my calendar? No, no, no. <laughs> I had been feeling for a couple of years that there was something bigger uh, on my radar screen to work in. It's just that feeling that I got. And I didn't know what it was. I was waiting for it. At the same time she did that, I got a call to be assistant surgeon general. I was one of two. Hadn't interviewed. Had nothing. So that's what I go back to. I think how you work, it does get noticed. And how do you make the decision? How did I make a decision? <laughs> well, my husband wasn't going to either places. He wasn't going to D.C. and he wasn't going to Atlanta. But I figured that going to Atlanta was a little bit closer to Nashville than right. D.C. And um, as it turned out, Dr. Um, Gerberdine understood how I work, so I was allowed to I had a, while I had a place to live there, I commuted. I drove down on Mondays and came back to Nashville on Fridays or Thursday. Beautiful drive, but I set my goals. If if the driving, how long would I stay at CDC? If the driving interfered with, I got tired of it, or it interfered with uh, my family. Um, if I was in a situation where my values were being challenged and they weren't meeting. 
So I had some criteria that I would look for, whether I stayed there or not. But I decided to to take that next stage. And I'm you, glad I did. And you did it for six or seven years? I did. And what was the most lasting lesson or accomplishment you had? We had the portfolio project, which, which was the first time that CDC had looked at all of the money coming from Congress and how it was going to the states and how it was used. So we chose the top 12 states and had a portfolio project where we actually helped to manage and strategically uh, make more impactful the monies that were going to like 12 of the states who were getting most of the money from CDC. And upon getting there, um, even a week or two before I got there, uh, Dr. Gerberdine had put in the paper that I was to lead a strategic, uh, comprehensive reimbursement and compre- uh, compensation committee looking at how CDC employees were compensated. So that was a biggie that we accomplished over the years I was there. There were some other things, the tribal units. The tribal nations were under me as well. And so creating a, um, a tribal portfolio that actually had engagement and as well as the so what with the policies and recommendations that were coming there. I'm big on the so what mm-hmm. because I'm at a time in my life where I'm seeing so many things that have gone through before. We talked up even tables today. Oh, we talked about that. about So we got to get to the so what or the needle's not going to be moved. Mm-hmm. Just one more thing. I came to come to academia the same way. People recognize my leadership skills, and I get a call when I came from CDC, and it's as simple as, we heard you back. Would you consider bringing your leadership skills to TSU? Now, throughout all this, you, you talked about going to the Department of Health and saying that you wanted to bring business terminology. Then you worked in a government job, and you had to learn a brand new language. And then you went to academia and yet a third kind of language. So how did you learn on the fly without having any business mm-hmm. or policy or educational mm-hmm. formal training? I was always a good learner. And so my learning does not, um, I I'm, have five or six books going at one time. So um, my mentor does not have to be a person that's physically there. I'm a, I'm a reader. I read a lot of books and observing and so I never stopped learning. I always had a thing for managing well. So as I got into management, who are the leaders? Who are the management gurus? How do you, what, what do I need to read? Mm-hmm. I'm a listener. When Dr. Wadley at the health department before I became director or Dr. Gerbeny mentioned a book, I'm on that book, you know. So I'm learning what my, my supervisors are learning. I'm in their space I'm a quick learner, too, so I don't stay stupid long, you know. I don't stay in I don't know a day or a moment. I don't know propels me to know the next time you come around. So academia probably was the biggest one as far as terminology, the bureaucracy of it, the culture of it. That probably was my biggest challenge uh, in learning those but for TSU, I'm better at Meharry. Continued learning on some level, you have other talents and skills. <laughs> One of the things you started in 2010 was 
a life coaching business. What made you think that that's where you were being called? Because there is more, I think uh, there is more to, I'm getting to prevention with that. Take myself. If I eat one Oreo, I'm eating a whole roll. No better. So how do you get health behaviors and get to prevention? People, I'm convinced people have knowledge. I used to do an informal study at any conference I went to to just ask how many women were getting, this was back in the 70s and 80s, got their breast exam, you know. And it went from a percentage of about 5% to over 50 so people know. I would sit at an a intersection and count the next 10 cars to see who had on the seatbelt. I did over a number of years. And I saw it go from 20% to almost 100%. So why is prevention so hard? So we have to peel back to the thoughts and beliefs because that from that springs the actions and then the results. Whether it's a governor, a president, or an elected official, their, their concentration here is at the action stage. And we don't have sustainability. Health behaviors, life choices is the biggest thing that contributes to health burden. Only 10% is access to care. 20% is environmental health. Whether you have clean air, clean water, food, 20% is genetics. Dr. Fagy did this study. He was a former director of CDC. So if 50% is about lifestyle behaviors, then we're not going to get to um, a healthier state or health being the default unless we begin to, back to the art of medicine, having the time to peel back and see what goes into your making this decision or having this action over and over or this result over and over again. That's why I became a life coach. Just to add it on to my your repertoire. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, your arsenal. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. you alluded to a documentary about your dad. Yes. Just debuted. It debuted. And where did it debut? Well, well, let's, I had my first uh, showing, uh, invitational showing premiere uh, last week. Uh, we expect to enter it into um, Sundance Festival and some other festivals. Um, lots of positive review about it. You can go to www.fathersi.org to see a sneak preview of it and what it's all about. But I am convinced that we can reclaim and recapture and preserve. Um, the interesting thing about the premiere, I had people fill out a questionnaire about it, how it affected them. And what came out of it is interesting. It was a, a variety of people at this premiere, about 70. And most people say, I, I had those values. My community was like that. So the question is, if we're all coming from a, a basic sense of these kind of community values, where did we lose them? What has happened? But it also gives me hope that we can get them back and transport them to our communities again. Mm-hmm. How did this idea to create a documentary oh. even come about? It started off, I, my father, like I said, did these films, and I was his apprentice at six and seven years old. You know, whenever the reels would break, he taught me how to put it back and tape it, and we roll it again. So when my parents died, my father in 94 and my mother in 97, I had these treasures, and my initial thought was to, and I did, 
I put them in VCR and then I did them in a CD and I gave them to each of my siblings so they can have these treasures. And then I said, there's got to be a message there. And my father loved Denton so. So why did he love this? So I began to find out and I started with questions of people of his generation. My siblings talked, I had questions about politics. What was it like? What was the it about Denton? Why? You know, just why? We had community moms and dads. You go on one street. You know, the community wanted us to do well. Not only just your parents, but your community did. You had community moms and dads on either street. And you've heard the stories. They whip you on one street and they bring you home and they whip you on another. Your parents were with you. There was respect for authority. There was decorum. You knew how to be a child. And um, it was just, and that's what comes out of this um, documentary. So as I began to explore about how to do, I began to read how to do a documentary, what kind of, what I need to do. And I was going to do it myself. And then um, it just happened uh, two years ago. I met this uh, man at uh, Orlando Airport. And he's coming back to Nashville, and I am too. We're both looking at this, where you plug up the port. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at it because I'm very observant. There's a family of about five, mother and father, three children, they're all hooked up. They're not communicating. They're all hooked up to their own thing. He's interested in it for the same reason. So we began to have a conversation. I began to tell him about um, wanting to do this documentary, and at the same time, he's a producer. So we got together. and so. Uh, what we, it is ah, a little bit of serendipity. Yeah, <laughs> it makes you really happy, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's really exciting. A little bit of rapid fire round, if you don't mind. Okay. Um, if you could recommend three books Ooh. for people to read, yes. what would you recommend? Victor Frankel's *Man's Search for Meaning*. It's a good it, one. Oh my gosh, that's a good one. You've read it. Yeah. Thank you. I, mm, it's about your why. And I, I use the, the quote in there all the time in, in my speeches. The next one would be one that's sort of, um, I'm a Clancy fan too. I'm, I'm convinced I'm coming back as a Navy SEAL. So, right. but <laughs> that's my group of books. Brad Thorne, Tom Clancy, that's that's me all over. Never would think that, but I'm going to be the baddest Navy SEAL oh, when snap. I come back. <laughs> so that's why I think I'm so bad. I think I'm so bad. Um there are some books in the IT realm like um, Linked, but Linked talks about networks. There's one, those about governing for networks, but Linked talks about um, the connection between like a, and that's by Barabasi, that talks about a cocktail party, uh, an epidemic, and um, it names a movie star. And it's all about how we are connected. Even improvisation has a certain pattern to it. So you know I do something and you feed off. So those type of things have you thinking about how connected we are and and why it is important whether you act or don't act, whether you say what you say. It does have some impact somewhere. And then books like um, God's Battalion and even Lincoln. I read biography. The one I'm reading now is Churchill's uh, book. Um, but there's so many different books out there that the more... When I would say, here's when you hear someone mention a book, I always mark it down. And I think that's where you learn more and you get to know about people too, as well. And the, the Churchill book is new, right? Yes, that's it within is. Within the last couple of months. That's correct. Yeah. Same I also it. have this one that's, um, well, I've never given, I have several on his, him. 
and uh, Sacred Fire is really good. Root Root of American Order by Kirk Russell mm-hmm. talks about uh, what I think is lost is our history on the generation now. But the Root of American Order talks about how our Constitution come. But there were five cities that were mostly influential: Greece, um, London, and a couple of these are the philosophers that were most influential. These are the empires over the past history that were most influential. Mm -hmm. Uh, Chains to Change by William Federer looks at 6,000 years of governments and how um, the big governments, the Roman Empire, the Mongolian Empire, the Ottoman, all those, how they came, they went through a pattern. And the question becomes, is America next? Good historical things to see because things are in patterns. And I do believe that when we see things sooner, we have a chance to erect change. Things very seldom happen in a revolutionary matter. It happens over time. Just look at obesity from CDs. We started collecting that around 1984, and you just see the states, just the obesity. Turning busy. redder oh and redder. Oh, my gosh. And then we change the scale so it gets you know more. But yet we think it just started just 10, 10 years ago. Right. I'm sorry, this is a quick round, isn't it? No, no, that's fine. <laughs> this is all food for thought for me. So, so and for everyone round. listening, what is your philosophy on leadership? Servant. Servant. What is your philosophy on being a good educator? Know yourself first. Before you can teach. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this one, I, I want a little bit more from you. So <laughs> in this in this one question, because this has been on my mind lately, because one of the things I think a lot about is like, how do you innovate in medicine and in healthcare? And what it seems to me, and you know, they've teach us this briefly through medical school, but for now it's like been in my head more, the social determinants of health. And when you look at the pie chart they make and they say, what are the causes that lead to people's poor health? The actual healthcare industry where people go to see a doctor or in a clinic or in a hospital is like, 12% of the That's chart. That's what I just talked about. The 10%, the 20%, the 20%. Right. And there are two different versions of the chart. One has five. Phase has just four. 10% is just access to care. Right. Out of the pie. And and the rest of the pie That's is, right. are things like genetics. Environment. To environment. And lifestyle behaviors. Lifestyle behaviors. Mm-hmm. Things like that. It seems we that potentially have 70% that we can control. Right. That's out of the doctor's hand. Prevention is not relegated to the doctor. It's about you and me and what we do. Right. Our choices. So one thing I notice is it seems that a lot of innovation is concentrated on that 10%. Absolutely. Money-wise, money too. Mm-hmm. And which makes no sense to me it because makes no sense. a lot of things they talk about in you know modern theories of innovation like design thinking is they talk about empathizing with the user or the patient to figure out what they need, but they, they focus the still on the 10% instead of doing That's everything right. else. So as someone with academic, medical, public health, policy music. background, music background. Sure, that, that works, you Creative. know. What do you suggest is the path we take if we want to innovate in medicine? Mm-hmm. Let me talk about the reason for that is because this is a quick fix society. And everybody, like what I was talking about, every president, governor, you know, mayor, want their name on something in four years. What's happened with health, you can't do in four years. And everybody wants their stamp and their name on the thing that's been done and disregard of the progress anybody's been done before them, which is 
which is not good. And then the, the financing structure sort of goes because when I come in and I have, um, there are things that cause emotional reactions and people are going to react to that. You've got to do this. You've got to do this. And then there's no time left to get down the scale to the prevention. I think innovation, I think technology is and, and it's going to change that. Just It's going to be a disruptor, even in the healthcare industry, that's going to change that. Because now I can go to a kiosk. I can go on the Internet to WebMD. I can go anywhere and find information. I can find a group that's dealing with things that I have personally, that's giving me the time to vent, to talk, to have my own ahas and be creative. So if we don't understand that kind of community dynamic, I think your traditional brick and mortar um, healthcare is going to miss out on something. Because while we're trying to preserve a, um, a, a healthcare industry that's focused on that I have buckets. That bucket of caring, someone else is going to be creating the other piece that's going to be most impactful for that. Mm-hmm. And where do you think, what role can Meharry play in being an innovator in healthcare? From my perspective, yes, I think the, a heavy dose of public health gets us there. And I've said this to the president as well. We're about the poor and the underserved, the ones who are most likely to not have the uh, full breadth of health industry. And to do that in this day and time, we've got to have a heavy, heavy dose of community engagement, a heavy dose of public health, heavy dose of understanding how the behaviors in communities and people's individual decision bear on their health-seeking behaviors. And what environments are we creating that are health-promoting as opposed to um, not? I like the idea that we're caring, putting that in there, because that puts a different dynamic than health care, which is laboratory, which is, you know, um, hospital and that sort of thing. But that that is only 10%. Right. But I think um, technology is going to be a disrupt and data. And when we have to look at our panels and see... What is the best way to access or the best way to get people into to maintain on treatment? It has absolutely nothing to do with that I can't get here to this clinic. People can get where they need to get. But so you need to step outside of the clinic and be where they are and start that process of listening artfully and devising together what might be the the best health result for this person, this neighborhood, this community, this nation. These are wise, wise words. I feel like I can talk to you all day. But I think we should. Let's do all the pods right here. All of them. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks for... You've been interesting too as well. I really have gotten and um, enjoyed getting to know you and what you're reading. You can tell a lot about people what they're reading. Well, thanks. I mean, you're setting... A standard that I hope we all can reach. Um, but I really appreciate you joining me today. Thank you. So we're virtually shaking hands. Well, we can physically shake hands Thank too. Thank you. <laughs> this episode was produced by Bassam Zahid. 
special thanks to our advisors, Lucius Pattonod, Kenneth Morris, and Shirlene Fry from the Office of Communications and Marketing. Thanks to Dr. Dexter Samuels from the Office of Student Affairs and Mr. Patrick Johnson of Institutional Advancement. Music by Lee Rosevier. I'm going for a coffee. Available on freemusicarchive.org. <laughs>